Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 88. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm recording this episode on September 13th, 2022, in Austin, Texas. If you are new to the podcast, we are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without presentism. If you deem us worthy, please subscribe in your favorite podcast app and follow us on Twitter or Facebook, if you do that sort of thing, of course. And by all means, send emails to thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. We have double cliffhangers at this point in the history of the Americans, one in Massachusetts and one in Virginia. If you listen to the last episode, you know that the paramount chief of the Powhatan Confederacy, Opakankanaw, has triggered his surprise attack on the English in Virginia, a war he has been planning for eight years or more. On the day the sky fell, March 22, 1622, Indian warriors had killed at least 347 settlers, including women, children, and servants, roughly a third of the non-Indian population of Virginia. By the end of that single day, the survival of any English settlement in Virginia was very much in doubt. We shall resolve that cliffhanger in a future episode. Three episodes back, the pilgrims confront the enemies within. We saw that the pilgrims had a treacherous but essentially bloodless 1622. They had learned that Squanto was playing a double game, building a personal following among the tribes in the region by claiming that only he could prevent the pilgrims from killing them all. He had tried to trick the pilgrims into a preemptive attack by claiming that the Massachusetts tribe to the north had teamed up with Massasoit's Wampanoags to wipe them out. The pilgrims in Massasoit had uncovered the conspiracy, and there was no war, but William Bradford refused to extradite Squanto as called for in the treaty between the Pilgrims and the Wampanoag, and that led to a crisis in their relationship. At the same time, their duplicitous lead investor, Thomas Weston, had sent a big batch of new settlers, mostly strangers rather than religious separatists, and demanded that the Pilgrims feed them from their meager stores until they were able to establish their own colony. We concluded that episode as follows, quoting me. By fall 1622, Weston's men, except for those who were sick and remained in the care of the pilgrims, left to settle in Wessagusset, 22 miles to the north of Plymouth, at the site of today's Weymouth. It was, in fact, a great location for a settlement, with one important qualification— it was decidedly in the territory of the Massachusetts tribe and by no means unoccupied or abandoned as Patuxet had been. This would turn out to be a catastrophic decision, and yet it would paradoxically lead to a more durable peace for the pilgrims at Plymouth, but only after some ballsy decisions and bold actions on their part. This episode is the story of those ballsy decisions and bold actions. It is November 1622. In Virginia, Powhatan warriors continue sporadic attacks on English settlers and their servants. In Europe, the Thirty Years' War rages on. In Massachusetts, Tisquantum, who had been exposed as playing a duplicitous game back in the spring, had spent the summer at Plymouth, 
since it was dangerous for him to go anywhere in Massasoit's territory. Desperately trying to get back into the good graces of Bradford, who would not execute him, and Massasoit, who wanted to. Edward Winslow would report that by November, Squanto had somehow sufficiently repaired his relationship with Massasoit so as to feel safe, leaving the protection of Plymouth's palisade. Compared to the first Thanksgiving harvest of 1621, as winter approached in 1622, the Pilgrims and Weston's men up in Wessagusset were running very short of food. This was almost entirely because of Weston's men, who had arrived without supplies of food for themselves and then rudely bypassed the system of rationing Bradford had imposed, doing such things as eating immature corn and thereby diminishing the harvest that fall. On moving to Wessagusset, they'd been resupplied by Weston, but in Winslow's account had wasted or overconsumed their supplies. By late November, Plymouth was hearing from the Indians that the Wessagusset men were antagonizing them. It must have been extremely tempting for the pilgrims to disassociate themselves with a desperate new colony. Weston's men did, however, have one thing the pilgrims didn't have— a reasonably decent 30-ton shallop called the Swan. It was decided that the two settlements would team up to go trade for food, pooling the hard-won intellectual property of the pilgrims, their knowledge of the tribes and geopolitics of the region, with Wessagusset's capital equipment in the form of the Swan. Standish was to lead the expedition with Squanto as the guide and interpreter, but Standish fell ill, apparently for the first time. So Bradford took his place. They would head for the south of Cape Cod. Of course, traveling below the elbow of the Cape would take them back to the Pollock Rip, the same treacherous area that had forced the Mayflower to turn around only two years before. This time they had Squanto, who claimed he had passed through it twice before, once with Thomas Dermer and another time with a Frenchman. Squanto got around. But the swan got caught up in the dangerous shoals and cross currents just as the Mayflower had done. Bradford wasn't going to tempt the fates, or the Lord Almighty, twice at the same place. He ordered the swan into Pleasant Bay, which is just above the elbow of the Cape near today's Chatham, Massachusetts. Over the next few days, Bradford and Squanto negotiated with the local... Manamoyaks for eight big barrels of corn and beans, which they finally secured after at least some reluctance on the part of the Indians. The swan prepared to leave Pleasant Bay and make another attempt to cross the Pollock Rip, and before they could depart, Squanto suddenly fell ill. Bradford wrote that Squanto was, quote, sick of an Indian fever, bleeding much at the nose, which the Indians take for a symptom of death, and within a few days died there designing the governor to pray for him that he might go to the Englishman's God in heaven and bequeath sundry of his things to sundry of his English friends as remembrances of his love, of whom they had a great loss. Back to me. Now let's go to Nathaniel Philbrick's elaboration. Quote, Bradford assumed that his trusted interpreter had died of natural causes, but he may have been the victim of an assassination plot masterminded by Massasoit. Although difficult to document, there were several suspected poisonings of high-ranking Indians in New England during the 17th century. That Squanto, who had 
survive the infectious streets of London, should suddenly fall prey to disease on Cape Cod, is highly unlikely. Massasoit's supposed reconciliation with the interpreter may have been only a ruse. Years later, his son was accused of ordering the secret execution of yet another Indian interpreter. Back to me, that son who would indirectly succeed Massasoit as Grand Sachem of the Wampanoag was named Medicom and was known to the English as King Philip. King Philip's War, the first real rupture in the peace agreed by Bradford and Massasoit, would in proportionate terms be the bloodiest war in American history, even exceeding Opekankanaw's war in Virginia. But we'll get to that at some point in the not-too-distant future, at least by the standards of this podcast. As for Squanto's legacy, we'll come back to that in a future episode. After Squanto died, Bradford continued trading without an interpreter, taking the swan back around Provincetown to the bay side of the Cape to trade with Anosset, with whom the pilgrims now had good relations. All in, Bradford bought some 26 to 28 hogshead of food, a hogshead was a large barrel but had no standard size in the early 17th century. These most likely held between 50 and 75 gallons, to give you at least some sense of their volume. Each would have weighed hundreds of pounds, and it represented quite a lot of food. Unfortunately, the fully laden swan, not to be confused with a fully laden swallow, ran aground on a beach and could not be floated off. The men essentially buried the food, preserving it against the elements. If you were extremely learned, you would say that they kenched the food, K-E-N-C-H. And Bradford and the other men walked the 50 miles back to Plymouth. Standish would lead an expedition back in early January to recover the food in the shallop. At the beginning of 1623, Plymouth was, in Philbrick's words, a place of exceptional discipline, Shared religious beliefs, strong families, and unusually wise leadership in Bradford, Winslow, and Standish had united not only the Leideners, but also those strangers who had cast their lot in with the separatists. Compared to every other attempt of Europeans to settle in today's United States, the Spanish at Santa Fe and St. Augustine, the English at Jamestown and Sagadahuck, and the French at St. Croix Island, the Pilgrims of Plymouth had prospered, maintaining fundamentally peaceful relations with the local tribes, and as a result, had had almost no mortality after that first brutal winter of 1620 and 21. Unfortunately, the nearby settlement at Wessagusset was looking a lot more like early Virginia, both in the incompetence of its leadership and its conflict with the locals. It was a group of unattached men with relatively little in common who could not feed themselves. This put the pilgrims in a tough spot. Now back to Philbrick. Quote, They were unprepared to face the rigors of a hard New England winter. As in Jamestown, a state of almost unaccountable languor quickly descended on the inhabitants. Suffering from a deadly combination of malnutrition and despair, the colonists appeared powerless to adapt to the demands of the new world. It was quite possible, the pilgrims insisted, for Weston's men to survive. Even without corn and migratory birds, there were still shellfish, including oysters, which were not available at Plymouth, 
along the water's edge at Wessagusset. There were also ground nuts, fleshy potato-like tubers that grew in clusters beneath the ground. Rather than give up, they must strive to feed themselves. But to seek food required them to leave the safety of their fortress. And unlike Plymouth, where the closest Indian village was 15 miles away, Wessagusset was set right beside a Massachusetts settlement. Not only was the threat of attack greater, but there was also an even more powerful form of temptation. The Indians possessed stores of corn that they were saving for the spring. Why spend the day rooting for clams in the cold muck when there was so much corn for the taking? In February, John Sanders, the settlement's leader, wrote to Governor Bradford asking if it was right to steal a few hogsheads of corn, especially if they promised to reimburse the Indians once they'd grown their own corn in the summer. This was, of course, almost exactly what the pilgrims had done two years before. But Bradford urged them to leave the corn alone, for it might so exasperate the Indians that all of us might smart for it. In desperation, Sanders sailed to the east in hopes of securing some provisions from a fishing outpost on the island of Monhegan. That's off the coast of Maine. He left his plantation in a state of misery and disorder. One morning they found a man dead in the tidal flats, waist-deep in muck. He'd apparently been too feeble to extract himself. As the sufferings of Weston's men increased, the Indians, who were already resentful of the English interlopers, began to harass them unmercifully. They scoffed at their weakness and even snatched from their hands what few clams and groundnuts they'd been able to gather. Some of the English resorted to trading their clothes for food until they were reduced to naked, trembling skeletons of wretchedness. Others contracted themselves out as servants to the Indians. One man, according to Wislow, turned savage and willingly joined the Indians. Back to me. Wessagusset was a time bomb, as Jamestown had been after John Smith's departure in 1609. As Wessagusset was enduring its starving time, Standish traveled to Manomet, 15 miles south of Plymouth, to pick up some of the corn that Bradford had bought on his trading mission with Squanto a few months before. While he was being entertained by Kanakum, the friendly sachem in the area, Two Massachusetts Indians arrived with word from Sachem Abdekeist at the village adjacent to the Weston settlement at Wissagusset. One of them was a warrior of immense pride named Widowamit, who presented an ornate European knife to Kanakum and made a long speech, which Standish could not understand. After the speech, Kanakum invited Widowamit to the place of honor at the gathering and provided him with entertainment that Standish perceived as much greater than he had received. Lacking Bradford's wise reticence, Standish took the insult as an insult, reproved Canicum and the two Massachusetts for having disrespected him, and stormed off in a huff. Only later did Standish realize that he had missed the significance of the encounter, that the Massachusetts were organizing an alliance of local tribes against the English. At the same time, word reached Plymouth that Massasoit was gravely ill, presumably at death's door, and that a Dutch vessel had been driven ashore at Poconoke, Massasoit's capital. Bradford knew that it was the custom among the tribes in the region for leaders to call upon one of their own in such times, 
and he also hoped to make contact with the Dutch in the region. He asked Edward Winslow, who could speak Dutch, Habamack, the remaining interpreter still living with the pilgrims, and John Hamden, an English gentleman spending the winter with the pilgrims, to travel the 40 miles to Poconoke. About halfway there, the three men encountered a group of Indians who reported that Massasoit had died and also that the Dutch had refloated their ship and departed. Habamack was shocked by the news and urged an immediate return to Plymouth. Winslow, however, believed that Corbett, who had lived just to the east of Poconoke, would be the likely successor as Grand Sachem, and that they should visit him and offer their respects. This was, as Philbrick puts it, an extremely hazardous proposition, because only a year before, Winslow and Habamack had been part of an expedition to kill Corbett, whom long-standing and attentive listeners will recall had been accused of having murdered Squanto. At Corbett's village, they learned from Corbett's wife that he was still at Poconoke and that she was not sure whether Massasoit was still alive. Winslow hired an Indian runner to go ahead and find out, and he quickly returned with the news that Massasoit still lived, but would not for long. Winslow, Habamack, and Hamden immediately went to Poconoke. It was night by the time they reached Massasoit's wigwam. Now let's go directly to Winslow's account, which I've modernized a little bit to make it easier to understand for listeners. Quote, When we came thither, we found the house so full of men as we could scarce get in, though they used their best diligence to make way for us. There they were in the midst of their charms for him, making such a hellish noise as it distempered us, who were well, and therefore unlikely to ease him, who was sick. About him were six or eight women, who chafed his arms, legs, and thighs to keep hate in him. When they had made an end of their charming, one told him that his friends the English were come to see him. Having understanding left, but his sight was wholly gone, Massasoit asked who has come. They told him, Wins now, for they cannot pronounce the letter L, but ordinarily N in the place thereof. He desired to speak with me. When I came to him, they told him of it. He put forth his hand to me, which I took. Then he said twice, though very inwardly, Keen wins now, which is to say, Art thou Winslow? I answered, Ah, he, that is yes. Then he doubled these words, Madanin wankamet namen wins now, that is to say, O Winslow, I shall never see thee again. Then I called Habamack and desired to tell Massasoit that the governor, hearing of his sickness, was sorry for the same. And though by reason of many businesses he could not come himself, yet he sent me with such things for him as he thought most likely to do him good in his extremity, and where if he pleased to take, I would presently give him, which he desired. And having a confection of many strengthening preserves on the point of my knife, I gave him some, which I could scarce get through his teeth. When it was dissolved in his mouth, he swallowed the juice of it, whereat those that were about him much rejoiced, saying he had not swallowed anything in two days before. Then I desired to see his mouth, which was exceedingly furred, and his tongue swelled in such manner as it was not possible for him to eat such meat as they had, his passage being stopped up. Then I washed his mouth, 
and scraped his tongue and got abundance of corruption out of the same. After which I gave him more of the confection, which he swallowed with more readiness. Then he desired to drink. I dissolved some of it in water and gave him thereof. Within half an hour, this wrought a great alteration in him in the eyes of all who beheld him. Presently after, his sight began to come to him, which gave him and us good encouragement. In the meantime, I inquired how he slept and when he went to the stool. They said he slept not in two days before and had not had a stool in five. Then I gave him more and told him of a mishap we had by the way in breaking a bottle of drink, which the governor also sent him, saying, if he would send any of his men to Patuxet, I would send for more of the same, also for chickens to make him broth. I'm going to interject here and go out on a limb and say that this is the first documented use of chicken soup for a sick person in the New World. This he took marvelously kindly and appointed some who were ready to go by two of the clock in the morning, against which time I made ready a letter declaring therein our good success, the state of his body, etc., desiring to send me such things as I sent for. Massasoit requested me that the day following I would take my gun and kill him some fowl and make him some English pottage, such as he had eaten at Plymouth, which I promised. Back to me, Winslow confessed in his narrative that neither he nor Hamden really knew how to cook the dish Massasoit wanted, but under the circumstances they winged it. Back to Winslow, quote, I caused a woman to grind some corn into flour, and when the day broke we went out, it being now March, to seek herbs, but could not find any but strawberry leaves, of which I gathered a handful and put into the same. And because I had nothing to flavor it, I went forth again and pulled up a sassafras root and sliced a piece thereof and boiled it till it had a good relish. The broth being boiled, I strained it through my handkerchief and gave him at least a pint, which he drank and liked it very well. After this, his sight mended more and more. I can see! I can see! I have, le I can I have legs! Also, he had three modest stools and took some rest. Insomuch as we with admiration blessed God for giving his blessing to such raw and ignorant means, making no doubt of his recovery, himself and all of them acknowledging us, the instruments of his preservation. Back to me, Massasoit recovered so quickly that when his messengers returned with the chickens from Plymouth, he kept them to breed rather than to eat. So maybe not the first use of chicken soup. He dispatched Winslow through his village to scrape out the mouths of other villagers who were sick, which Winslow did, quote, though it were much offensive to me, not being accustomed to such poisonous odors. There were two immediate consequences of this medical miracle, which cannot help but call to mind the healing that converted Cabeza de Vaca and his three fellow survivors from slaves to spiritual leaders among the Indians of South Texas. All of this had been witnessed by sachems from all over the region who had gathered to pay what they thought were their final respects to Massasoit, Indeed, before Winslow's arrival, there had been grumbling among them that the English had not come to visit, as they had. Now they confessed that 
They were wrong to have doubted the English and declared themselves again their allies. Massasoit himself declared that whilst I live, I will never forget this kindness they have showed me. And he wouldn't. The other consequence was more specific. The now revived Massasoit met privately with Habamak, his trusted warrior, a Panisse. Now back to Winslow, quote, The Grand Sachem revealed the plot of the Massachusetts against Master Weston's colony and so against us, saying that the people of eight other tribes were joined with him, himself also in his sickness, and was earnestly solicited, but he would not join therein. Therefore, as we respected the lives of our countrymen and our own safety, he advised us to kill the men of Massachusetts who were the authors of this intended mischief. Back to me. Winslow replied that it was against their beliefs to attack preemptively. But Massasoit pointed out that when the English at Wessagusset were killed, they being not able to defend themselves, that then it would be too late to recover their lives, and that with so many adversaries, the pilgrims themselves would be at great jeopardy. Massasoit therefore, quote, counseled without delay to take away the principles, and then the plot would cease. He strongly advised Winslow to get back to Plymouth with great haste and sent Winslow along with his fondest thanks to Governor Bradford. Meanwhile, the catastrophe at Wessagusset was reaching its crisis. Warriors gathered outside the fort and taunted the English. The settlers increased the number of men on watch, but their starvation was now such that they began to die at their posts. Then word reached the settlement from an Englishman living with the Indians that the Massachusetts planned to attack both Wessagusset and Plymouth, just as Massasoit had told Habamack. Sachem Abdekeist was only waiting for the snow, still on the ground there in late March, to melt so that his men wouldn't leave footprints as they moved through the area. Finally, the man from whom we know all of this, a tradesman named Phineas Pratt, decided to desert the ford and take the great risk of getting to Plymouth. He put on a small pack and casually walked out of the palisade with a hoe in his hand, pretending to dig for ground nuts at the edge of a large swamp. Seeing no Indians, he disappeared into the swamp. Pratt covered the 20 miles to Plymouth as fast as a starving man could possibly do, eventually encountering John Hamden, himself just returned from Poconoke. With Pratt's news on top of Habamack's report for Massasoit, on March 23, 1623, a year and a day after Canal launched his attack in Virginia, Bradford convened a public meeting to discuss how to proceed. Winslow wrote that war required, quote, the consent of the body of the company, a knowing reference to the Mayflower Compact. In the deliberations, the fate of the Virginians weighed on them. They also worried about the morality of a preemptive attack, and some no doubt wondered whether Massasoit was setting them up. They must have been greatly frustrated that Weston's men, who had treated them so poorly, had put them in this position out of sheer incompetence. Standish, still aggrieved at the insult he had suffered at Manomet, would have needed no persuasion, and in the end, the pilgrim leaders agreed to unleash him. Rather than a frontal assault, Standish decided on subterfuge. He put together a small force of seven English in Habamack, and they set out on a boat for Wessagusset, pretending to be a trading mission. 
When Standish arrived, he found that the men in the fort were so addled by starvation that they had given up worrying about an Indian attack. Indeed, at least three of them were now living with the Indians in their wigwams, and they saw no need to fight. Standish explained that he was going to pretend a friendship with the Indians and then attack them. He'd brought corn and said that after he was done, Weston's men were free to return with him to Plymouth or take the swan and sail up to Maine. In his disgust at their condition, he probably hoped that they would just leave. Regardless, the prospect of food changed their minds and Standish planned his attack. At one level, the Massachusetts were on to Standish. A warrior approached the fort pretending to trade furs and asked to meet with Standish, who was, after all, leading a trading mission. Standish tried to cover his intentions, but the warrior returned to his people and reported that he saw by Standish's eyes that he was angry in his heart. Then a Massachusetts panisse, Pexuit, approached Habamack, also a panisse. Pexuit told Habamack that he and Wittawamet were unafraid of the English and declared that Standish would not take us unawares. A bit later, Pexuit and Wittawamet brashly walked up to Standish. Both Indians were much taller than the famously short soldier. Pexuit looked down at Standish and said, supposedly disdainfully, that you are a great captain, yet you are but a little man. Though I be no sachem, yet I am of great strength and courage. Wittawamet calmly stood by, sharpening his knife on a stone, casually reporting that he had killed both French and English. Standish kept his fury in check for the moment. Now let's go to Philbrick. Quote, the next day, Standish invited both Wittawamet and Pexuit into one of the settlement houses for a meal. In addition to corn, he'd brought along some pork. The two Massachusetts Panises were wary of the Plymouth captain, but that did not prevent them from accepting Standish's invitation. Wittawamet and Pexuit were accompanied by Wittawamet's brother and a friend, along with several women. Besides Standish, there were three other pilgrims and Habamack in the room. Once they had all sat down and begun to eat, the captain signaled for the door to be shut. He turned to Pexuit and grabbed the knife from the string around the Panisse's neck. Before the Indian had a chance to respond, Standish had begun stabbing him with his own weapon. The point was needle-sharp, and Pexuit's chest was soon riddled with blood-spurting wounds. As Standish and Pexwit struggled, the other pilgrims assaulted Wittawamet and his companion. It is incredible, Winslow wrote, how many wounds these two Panises received before they died, not making any fearful noise, but catching at their weapons and striving to the last. All the while, Habamak stood by and watched. Soon the three Indians were dead and Wittawamet's teenage brother had been taken captive. A smile broke out across Habamak's face, and he said, Yesterday, Pexuit, bragging of his own strength and stature, said though you were a great captain, yet you were but a little man. Today I see you were big enough to lay him on the ground. But the killing had just begun. Wittawamet's brother was quickly hanged. There was another company of pilgrims elsewhere in the settlement, and Standish sent word to them to kill any Indians who happened to be with them. As a result, two more were put to death. In the meantime, Standish and his cohorts found another Indian and killed him. 
with Habermack and some of Weston's men in tow, Standish headed out in search of more Indians. They soon came across Sachem Abdekist and a group of Massachusetts warriors. Situated between the English and the Indians was a rise of land that would afford a strategic advantage, and both groups began to run for it. Standish reached it first, and the Indians quickly scattered along the edge of the nearby forest, each man hiding behind a tree. Arrows were soon whizzing through the brisk afternoon air, most of them aimed at Standish and Habamek. Habamek was a panisse and was therefore supposedly invulnerable. Throwing off his coat, he began to chase after the Indians behind the trees. Most of them fled so quickly that none of the English could keep up with them. Back to me. The pilgrims had also captured three Indian women. Standish might well have used them to bargain for the return of the English living with the Indians, but instead he released them. The Indians soon executed the Englishmen who had gone to live with them. The fighting having ended, most of Weston's surviving men decided to board the Swan and sail for Monhegan, Maine, where they would be able to hitch a ride home with the many fishing vessels that used that coast as a base. Once the Swan was out of sight, the pilgrims got in their shallop and sailed for Plymouth in the south. They carried with them a bundle of white linen in which they had wrapped Widowamit's head. The aftermath of the Pilgrim Raid was chaotic, but eventually settled down into a lasting peace in the area. Here's how Winslow described it, again, the slight clarifying edits. Quote, Concerning those other people that intended to join with the Massachusetts against us, that we never went against any of them, yet this sudden and unexpected execution together with the just judgment of God upon their guilty consciences, hath so terrified and amazed them, as in like manner they forsook their houses, running to and fro like men distracted, living in swamps and other desert places, and so brought manifold diseases amongst themselves, where are very many are dead, as Canicum, the sachem of Manomet, Aspinae, the sachem of Nosset, and Eno, sachem of Metachuist, the sachem in life, in the midst of these distractions, said the god of the English was offended with them and would destroy them in his anger. And certainly it is strange to hear how many of late have, and still, daily die amongst them. Neither is there any likelihood it will easily cease, because through fear they set little or no corn, which is the staff of life, and without which... They cannot long preserve health and strength. Back to me. In other words, on hearing the fate of the Massachusetts, the other conspiring tribes hid in the woods out of fear, and that caused them to plant too little food, which led to starvation and disease over the course of the year. It is, of course, easy to argue that the preemptive attack was immoral. It's not necessarily presentist to take that position. There were English at the time who were critical of the pilgrims, few more so than John Robinson, the leader of the separatists in Leiden, who wrote Bradford an excoriating letter for having waged offensive war. Indeed, Edward Winslow's Good News from New England includes a self-conscious defense of the decision, much of which we talked about in this episode. Of course, it's easy enough for those of us living comfortable lives 400 years later to construct arguments pro and con. And I will not myself take a strong stand on the question because I do not think it's necessary. It doesn't matter much. 
It would be said, however, that the pilgrims of the founding generation never lusted for violence. They undertook it only after great deliberation and, no doubt, long prayer. Weighing the considerable evidence put before them by Massasoit and Habamack, among others. Finally, in the category of European Indian conflict, even the rough and ready Miles Standish exercised extraordinary restraint. He struck a decapitating blow, literally, actually, taking out the two most important Massachusetts warriors and killing only six Indians in total. This was shock and awe with minimal collateral damage. There was no vengeful slaughter, no killing of women and children, and no burning down of villages and fields. Nathaniel Philbrick supplies a coda of sorts to the decisive year of 1623 in New England. Quote, That summer, the supply ship Anne arrived with 60 passengers, including the widow Alice Southworth. The Southworths and Bradfords had known each other in Leiden. And just a few weeks after the Anne's arrival, William and Alice were married on August 14, 1623. The festivities that followed were much more than the celebration of a marriage. A new order had come to New England, and there to commemorate the governor's nuptials was Massasoit with a black wolfskin draped over his shoulder and, for propriety's sake, with just one of his five wives by his side. Interjection. Is there any doubt that Massasoit was both super stylin' and very tuned in to the cultural sensitivities of his deeply religious allies? Few politicians today are so smart. Back to Philbrick. Also attending were about 120 of his warriors, about twice as many men as he'd been able to muster a little more than a year ago who danced with such a noise, one witness reported, that you would wonder. As Indians on Cape Cod to the east and in Massachusetts to the north continued to be gripped by fear and confusion, a supreme confidence had come to the Poconoques. Massasoit was now firmly in control, and it had been Standish's assault at Wessagusset that had made it possible. Serving as a grim reminder of the fearful power of the Poconoke Pilgrim Alliance was the flesh-blackened skull of Widow Womit still planted on a pole above the fort roof. It was only appropriate that a new flag be raised for Massasoit's benefit. Instead of the standard of England and its red St. George's cross, the pilgrims unfurled a blood-soaked piece of linen. It was the same cloth that had once swaddled Wituwamit's head, and it now flew bravely above the fort, a reddish-brown smear against the blue summer sky. Back to me. The record does not reveal how Alice Southworth Bradford felt about a bloody rag raised as a flag on her wedding day. My strong suspicion is that she was herself tough as nails, For my part, think about how wise these pilgrims and Indians were across a vast cultural and language barrier. They each had learned how to make an appropriate gesture of respect. Semiotics on the fly. The pilgrims with their flag and Massasoit with his nod toward monogamy. The more you think about it, the more astonishing it is. 
Bradford and Massasoit and their people would remain in alliance as long as the two great men lived. Thank you again for listening to the History of the Americans podcast. Your emails have been very encouraging. Please keep them coming. You can reach me with questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation, or pats on the back on the contact page for the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. Until next time.